Well, it is great to welcome all of you and uh, good to have the opportunity to dig into God's Word together with one another. Looking forward to beginning a brand new sermon series together with you. And uh, so we do welcome you today and we welcome you not only the ones who are listening live and in person, but also those of you who are listening online and joining us that way or perhaps on the Moon Campus or perhaps in our classic venue. It's a uh, good to have the opportunity to welcome all of you as well. Looking forward to where we are going here together today. And as we get started, I just want to acknowledge something that we all already know, and that is that sometimes life doesn't make sense. Can we just agree on that? The fact that, that sometimes life just doesn't make sense, that's what we're calling this message here today, when life doesn't make sense. Now, there are all sorts of things in life that don't make sense. Some of them are a little bit more consequential than others. Some of them aren't all that big of a deal. For instance, it doesn't make sense that we take a round pizza and put it in a square box and then eat it in triangles. I mean, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And, and why does Hawaii have an interstate highway? I mean, what other states are they driving to from, from Hawaii? Or why does the dentist put five fingers in your mouth and then ask you a question? I mean, it just doesn't really make sense, and really it doesn't matter either. But there are some other realms in life where it matters a great deal, but it still doesn't make sense. Why do bad things happen to good people? How about mass shootings? in schools, in churches, in workplaces. Sometimes we even come to learn the motive that the person had, and it still doesn't make sense as to why that was a choice that they chose to execute, or accidents that take people's lives, or diseases that do the same thing, or, or why COVID would ravage our land and even end up pitting people against other people. And maybe even a little bit closer to home for some of you, it was supposed to be until death do us part. And parents aren't supposed to have to bury children. And sometimes we work so hard and we just don't seem to get ahead. Nobody's paying attention. In fact, they seem to be working against me. It just doesn't make sense. It seems empty. So much of the time, struggling to make sense of life's circumstances can be very hard, very confusing, but it's nothing new. As long as there have been people, there have been things that confuse us and that don't make sense. It comes naturally because sometimes we just see the world through different lenses. It comes naturally because sometimes the will of another person or another power triumphs over my will. It happens naturally because we can't always pull back the curtain and see all of what God is doing or what somebody else in a position of authority might be doing. And we just sort of end up confused. We're finite beings, and so we can't control all of those things. And when the things just start to pile up more and more and more, we start to think, this doesn't make sense. I don't follow. I don't understand, we might think. There's a very interesting book that was written a little while ago that actually addresses sort of the, the disequilibrium we sometimes feel and the disconnection from us being able to understand the significance of the things that are going on around us. 
It's not a new book, but it speaks with tremendous relevance to these sorts of things that we see. Talks about issues, things like questions that we have of what, what is the meaning of life and, and where's God? Is God out there at all? And if He is, why don't I understand more of the things or why isn't there a greater sense or connection in the things that are happening? Or maybe just the struggles that we feel or in the inequities and the injustices that we see around us. It's a book that, that talks about living life and navigating our way through a fallen world. That book is called Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be taking a look at it together this fall. Now, you're probably going to have one of two very different reactions to this book as we study it. You might find that it just rather resonates with you because you're one who looks around and says, I don't understand what's going on in this book says that same thing. And it's, it might charge you up a little bit. You're like, things are just so different than what they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I don't understand it. I don't understand how we got here. And maybe you're actually quite worried and concerned about the world that your kids and your grandkids are going to be growing up in. And you're like, yeah, life doesn't make sense. And, and so that's fine to lean into what you're going to be hearing and what you're going to be reading. But, but be careful that you don't get so wrapped up in it that it just leads you to despondency and, and to despair of your own and anger that might just build up. That's one possibility of what would happen. On, on the other hand, you might find this book to be very disturbing. You might find yourself trying to make excuses for what it says to try to explain away what is there, you might come to it and say, I don't know what his problem is. I think life is great. I think it's awesome. But don't try to explain him away. Let him ask his questions. In fact, I'd encourage you to ask your own questions. The ones that maybe you, you push away and that you don't want to have see the light of day and you kind of pretend that they're not there, but they are there. Don't be afraid to ask them. It's not a denial of God or of faith to ask your hard questions. A faith that can't ask questions isn't really faith at all. Here's the bottom line. I mean, here's, here's the truth. The deeper your questions go, the deeper your faith can go. The deeper your questions go, the deeper your faith can go. Because faith grows when it's put to the test. So we come to Ecclesiastes. This book is faith put to the test. And we're calling this series, What's the Point? What's the point? Searching for meaning in Ecclesiastes. It's a single question, but it actually has a couple of different facets to it. One of them is this. It's, it's like, what's the point of Ecclesiastes? What's the author's point? What's he trying to say to us? What's he trying to communicate? But it's also, what's the point, as in, I don't get it. This doesn't make any sense to me, what we are talking about here in this first week as we open this up. What's the point? What's life all about anyway? Now, if you haven't already, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it can be kind of hard to find Ecclesiastes. If you are familiar with the Bible, it can be kind of hard to find Ecclesiastes. It's kind of tucked away there in the middle of the Old Testament. 
But I'd encourage you to try to find it. If you open up the Old Testament and, and you can find the big books of Psalms and Proverbs, it comes right after that. Or if you can find the big books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, it comes right before that. A couple of little books. But it would be helpful to have it open so you can sort of answer the question for yourself, does it really say that? I mean, he read that, but does it really say that? And uh, it does really say that, but it'll be helpful for you to, to follow your way along. So I'd really encourage you to be bringing your, your Bible week by week. And failing that, your Bible app to, to follow along. There's always going to be an outline for you there in the pathway notes that you can use to follow along some take some, and take some notes as we go as well. And here in this opening chapter, there are three essential elements that we need to get a grasp on. Because if we can do so, it's going to set us up for navigating our way through the whole of this book. So very important that we establish some of these things as we get going. And the first has to do with who is writing this book. That's where the book begins. So that's where we're going to begin with an attempt to meet the teacher. To meet the teacher. That's where we're getting started. The author of Ecclesiastes is actually referred to as the teacher in verse 1. So that's why we're talking about meeting the teacher. Of course, meeting the teacher is something that a lot of students have been doing here in, in recent weeks as uh, kids are going back to class, and some of them are not going back to class anymore, but that's a different story. But they've been meeting their teacher, and some teachers, before the kids ever came onto the campuses, tried to introduce themselves to their students by way of some technology, maybe FaceTime or some other video app, they introduced themselves to their students before the kids ever came to get them off to a good start, which is really awesome, except for the fact that, that some parents actually took that as an opportunity to play pranks on their own kids. See for yourself. Take a look at this. Shane, I have your new teacher on the phone. You want to talk to him? Yeah. Come look at him. That's your new teacher. This is the teacher. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> say hi. Can you say hi? Hi. She's your new teacher. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss Stacy. I'm going to show you Gabriela. Give me one second. Gabriela, this is going to be your preschool teacher. You want to meet Miss Stacy? Miss Stacy. Miss Stacy. <laughs> Who thinks that's mean? To, yeah, right? How many of you wish you'd have thought of it? Yeah, that's the other half of you here, all right? Okay, well, that's, that's kind of horrible. Hopefully you're more excited to meet the teacher here than what uh, those kids were to meet their teacher. And we do meet our teacher right away here. We're introduced to him in verse 1. Take a look at it. It says this, The words of the teacher... The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word teacher here actually literally means leader of the congregation. So in some translations, you'll see it doesn't say teacher, it says preacher, which would also be a very appropriate translation of what's going on here. Now in verse 1, which we've just looked at, the author doesn't give his specific name, but there are enough details that are offered to us here that we, it pretty well points us to who this person is that we have in view. It says that this is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, or the king in Jerusalem. There's really only one person that points to, and that is Solomon. 
Solomon is the guy who is right now, because his name isn't specifically put here in verse 1, of course there's always going to be somebody who suggests, and especially in more recent years, somebody who suggests, well, it's not Solomon. And I understand, I've read all of those arguments, but there's enough said here about who this person is. It's pretty descriptive. Together with, as we read through Ecclesiastes and we read through the life of Solomon, they line up pretty closely together. So I think it's, it's very, a very rational conclusion to draw that Solomon is our author. And so that's the way we're going to look at this as, may, as we make our way throughout this text. Now, Solomon was a guy who came to the throne as a young man following his father David. And uh, when he comes onto the throne, God appears to him in a dream, and he says, you can have anything that you want. What do you want? I'd have probably said, like, a new car and season tickets for the pirate. Well, at least a new car I would, I would have asked for, right? But that's not what Solomon does. That's not anything sort of selfish that he asks for. He asks for wisdom, and God grants that to him so that he can, so that he can rule the nation well. And we find out Solomon becomes the wisest man on earth. Unfortunately, he doesn't always use that wisdom. And we find that as his life continues on, that he starts turning to things that are greedy and and lustful and and self-serving and idolatrous. And it has devastating consequences for him and for his life and for his kingdom that he is seeking to lead the nation of Israel. And so it's thought that Ecclesiastes are some of Solomon's reflections later on in life as he looked back, looks back on all of the different things that he has done. Some of them very, very good. Some of them not so very, very good. And he's reflecting on the things that have gone by. And he says, as I look at all of those things, it's pretty empty. It's pretty empty. So that's our introduction. It's very brief, but it tells us Who's our guy? Solomon's our guy, and we know a few things about him. So that sort of sets us up pretty well here, and it leads us to the second element of this opening chapter, and it's this, to to see the despair. We meet the teacher, now to see the despair. So if you can pick up on what he's going to say here, I'll be really impressed, all right? So I'm going to read for you verse 2 and see if you can figure out kind of the thought that is going on in his mind, all right? Here it is. Meaningless meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Any guesses about what's on his mind? Anybody can take a stab at it? How about maybe that life is meaning? You are fantastic. Wow, how'd you know that? You just picked up on the subtlety of that right there in verse 2. No, he, he comes right out of it. This is pretty depressing. I think he wrote this book on a Monday, right? You don't want to read this book with, with sharp knives laying around. But the word translated here, meaningless, is actually a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, hevel. Hevel, you can see it right here. H-E-V-E-L is how we transliterate it into English. Hevel. And it's important that you would understand that. Not that you would remember the Hebrew so much, but it comes up so many times in this book. To not focus on this word would be to kind of miss the meaning <laughs> of, of what's here. All right, Hevel. It's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. We just saw four of those uses right here in what we have just read in one verse. Literally, it means something like a vapor or smoke or a breath, like 
Think of a breath on a really cold day. You can see it for a moment, and then it dissipates. He's saying, that's life. It's here for a moment, and it's gone. And the result is, what meaning can there be in a life of that nature? He says, none at all. He says, it's meaningless. And as he goes on, it's like, well, let me prove that to you. You can even see it, he says, in all of the things around you. Because first of all, he says, nothing changes. Talking about despair here, see the despair. And one piece of that, he says, is that nothing, nothing ever changes. And to start to prove his point, he goes on in verse 3, look at it. He says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Round and around, cycles, just again and again, repetition. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. There they return again. Solomon uses these cycles of the the natural world to talk about the monotony of life. Now, he's not dissing the natural world. He's not dissing that which God has created, the the sun and the wind and and the sea. He's not doing that at all. He's just saying, here's something that all of you can picture. This is something that you all know, and he's using it as an illustration to talk about just how things keep going again and again and again. And then he says, that's like life. We just keep going through the same things over and over and over again. You've been there, right? There are all kinds of things. As you just think about the flow of life, they just keep happening over and over and over again. And you just have to keep going through them again and again and again. Doesn't it seem like you barely have the laundry folded and put away and the hamper's already full? Right? This is not just my experience. I'm quite sure that the bills keep coming in, right? You got to pay those bills over and over again. You work and work to get the email inbox cleared out, and 10 minutes later, it's full again. We all go through these things. The sink always seems full. The trash always seems full. The diapers always seem full. Just over and over and over again it goes. Now, for me, lately, this cycle that has been bothering me to no end is the ground underneath my apple tree. I'm convinced I have the most prolific apple tree in Pennsylvania. I'm completely convinced because it is dropping literally bushels of apples onto the ground underneath my tree. I am not making that up. The other day, earlier this week, I took a big garbage can out there to collect the apples. I'm talking a big one, you know, like the ones you've got in your your garage that you take all of the inside bags and you put them in there and then you put it out to the curb. I took that whole thing under the apple tree. I filled it up. I got a second garbage can. I filled it up too, to the top. Hundreds and hundreds of apples we're talking about, and that was in the span of three days. I'm telling you, my apple tree is like the feeding of the 5,000, right? You pick up all of the apples, and it's like there's more that are being placed on the tree even as you pick those up. You can't run out of apples. How long this is going to go on, I don't know, but it's horrible. I have more apples than Peace Valley has apples, It's ridiculous, but it's the way that things are going, and so what do I do? Every couple days, I go out, and I pick them up again, and the cycle just keeps going on, and it's totally meaningless because none of them are edible. I just pick them up, 
over and over and over and on and on it goes. So I'm only left with one question. Does anybody have a chainsaw I can borrow? <laughs> because that would take care of my problem. And it would in this particular case. But see, here's the problem. We also face circumstances in our lives that go around and around and around, and we want to find some way, a chainsaw solution to just take care of them and be done with it. But we don't have that. See, we, we might try it in the realm of our job because we don't like our job. I need a new job, or I need a new career you might say. And so you change jobs, and you go off into the new one because the grass is going to be so much greener over here, and pretty soon you realize, I've got the same problems that I used to have. In fact, some of them are worse than they were, and I can't stop working, and so I'm stuck. Just a cycle. Keeps repeating itself over and over again. Or I need a new car, or, or I need a better house, and so we get those things, and we stretch ourselves to do it, and pretty soon that car's breaking down. And that house has problems. Or we go and we get a different friends. Sometimes we go and get a different spouse. And we think that's going to be the answer. And maybe it is for a while. Maybe even for decades. But Solomon's not really thinking decade-long thought here. He's thinking eternal thoughts here. And he's getting to the end of life. And all of the things that he has seen and all of the things that he's tried and that he's seen other people try and he's saying, you know what? It's not the solution. Life is still what? Meaningless. It's empty. It's void. Nothing changes, he says. But that's not where he stops. As he's, he's talking about seeing the despair. Yeah, nothing changes. He also says that nothing's new. That nothing's new. The teacher is longing for something fresh and exciting, but he's finding the opposite. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. One thing doesn't stop and something fresh comes in its place. We think that's what's going to happen. We're going to be done with that, and all of a sudden, everything's going to be new and exciting and wonderful and challenging. It's wonder, and it doesn't happen. Just repetition goes on. Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? No, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Nothing's new. Boring repetition. You know what this chapter is? This chapter is Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's what it is. If Ecclesiastes was made into a movie, it would be a lot like Groundhog Day. Solomon would be played by Bill Murray. And I wouldn't be surprised if later in Ecclesiastes there's a groundhog that shows up. It's just that. It's, it's life over and over and over again. And maybe you've experienced some life that feels a lot like Groundhog Day. Monday, get up, get dressed. You go to work, you come home, put the kids to bed. You go to bed Tuesday, you get up, you get dressed, you go to work, you come home, put the kids to bed. On and on it goes, day after day after day after day, the daily grind. We can't, we live for the weekend, but the weekend is so short right now, and then we're back into the grind again. 
over and over and over again. You know how often I hear people uh, complain about the circumstances of life in that regard? What are they saying? They're saying that nothing's new. That's what Solomon's saying too. We've had personal experience that falls in the realm of what Solomon is talking about here. It's where the despair comes from. Nothing changes, nothing's new, and also nothing's fulfilling. That's what he says as he goes on now. Now, it's not that he hasn't tried to find fulfillment. Let's read on. Verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. There's another clear reference to the fact that this is Solomon we're talking about. It says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. In other words, he's, he's saying, I'm not just finding things meaningless because I'm lazy and I'm sitting around. I'm not sitting around and binge-watching the office or something. I'm engaged. I'm doing something. What does he say? In verse 12, he says that I'm Solomon, essentially. And by saying that, everybody knows who's reading this. It's like, oh, that's the wisest guy who's ever lived. And he says then in verse 13, I took and I applied all of the wisdom that there was available to me, which is all the wisdom, and tried to apply that to life. He says, you know what I found? Nothing. Meaninglessness. He's coming up empty again. Verse 13 goes on. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding, to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. Stop there a second. Solomon is saying that he's applied all of his vast wisdom. What happened? Comes up empty. He said, so I tried something different. He says, I applied myself to madness and folly. That means he's not just trying the high-minded things, he's trying the low-minded things too. Not just applying himself to wisdom and that, that ability that God has given him, he's applying himself now to sin and greed and pleasures and sexuality of a, of a bad kind. He says, I've tried it all. And you know what? That didn't satisfy either. That left me empty as well. How much pain could we save ourselves from if we would learn the lessons of somebody like Solomon, who says, these things are empty. Don't go after them thinking that that's going to be the panacea, that that's going to be the thing that really accomplishes all of the things that you're looking for and is going to leave you with satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. But we somehow seemed that, to think that we got to try it ourselves and go through it ourselves. Now, in this particular case, Solomon at the end of his life is saying it's meaningless, but Ecclesiastes doesn't give us the whole story of what happens in his life. But if you read the rest of the scriptures, we come to understand that there were some rather significant consequences that came to Solomon because of the choices that he made. Severe consequences that didn't only impact him, but it would impact the kingdom of Israel. He's going to be the last king of the United Kingdom. After he's done, things are going to split. They're going to separate off into divided kingdoms. There's going to be strife. There's going to be problems. He's setting a legacy for his sons who are going to be against one another. They're going to be against God. Almost all of them walk apart from God. 
because of some of the choices that he has made. And he's saying, you know what, I applied myself to those things, to madness and to folly. And verse 17 continues, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. That's to say, the life and wisdom that Solomon was pursuing in his own efforts are only leaving him sorrowful and unfulfilled. So, that brings us to the end of chapter 1. Who's inspired? (laughs) I mean, doesn't this pretty much make you just want to go back and put on your COVID sweatpants and curl up in a corner with a bag of Doritos and a box of donuts? I mean, doesn't it really? Which which is a good plan in the best of times, but uh, these aren't the best of times. These are the worst of times. And I get it. The teacher has been painting a pretty bleak picture of all of life being being meaningless. But is that all there is in chapter 1? I mean, are we just supposed to walk away thinking that life is that blah, it is that awful? Your perspective yourself might be, well, I'm happier than that. Is there any hope to be found here at all in what we've seen? Well, that's the last thing that we want to apply ourselves to here before we wrap it up. That is to find the hope. We met the teacher. We saw the despair. Well, let's look for some hope. See if there's anything that we can find here. Now, there's certainly no declaration of faith and belief that comes soaring out of the verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. No great declaration that we put in our songs and that we sing to God. But that's not to say that there's nothing here to find at least a glimmer of hope in. There's a little phrase that the teacher, Solomon, has been dripping in along the way as we've been reading. I don't know if you caught it as we made our way along. A little phrase. He brings it up several times. comes up in verse 3 comes up again in verse 9, comes up again in verse 14, and just a little different way, he says it in verse 13 as well. It's this little phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. If you look back in the text, you can see it in all those different places. In the ancient mind, to be under the sun didn't just mean that this is something that happened on earth. It carries the idea, the notion that this is something that is of the earth. That this is something of a, of a human origin. This is something that man has generated. It's separate from the divine. The supernatural was thought to be above the sun. And in these references here that I've just pointed out to you, the teacher is saying that there is no meaning or fulfillment that is, that is found merely through the things of this world or the things that can be, can be brought to bear by the efforts of man or the efforts of women. And of course, to say that which is under the sun lacks the ultimate, begs us to consider, well, what is it then that can be found beyond the sun? It at least opens up our minds to this idea that there must be something else. If this is all the stuff that happens under the sun, that there must be something to hope in, something to consider that's even further. And we're going to keep coming back to this throughout this book because this little phrase, under the sun, It's found 30 times in Ecclesiastes. 30 times. 
Solomon wants to expose the meaningless of this life under the sun to give us a curiosity and an appetite for, well, what is it that's better? What is it that's more transcendent? What is there to find perhaps some hope in? As we come to understand that little piece that he's dripped in here, we start to see that as despondent as this whole thing looks, there is a glimmer of hope. There's something to consider. There's something to look toward, to find some meaning. It all depends on where you're finding your meaning, which certainly applies for us too. You might be finding your search for all of the things that are going to fulfill you in this life to make it meaningful. You might find that what's happening for you is just kind of leaving you a little bit blah. Maybe it, maybe it helped out for a little while, but it's lost its luster. And so you find yourself in the place where, you know what, what Solomon is talking about, that kind of resonates with me just a little bit. So you might try to re-energize yourself through, through the thing that gave you a little bit of a boost the last time. And it might help you out just a little bit, give you a little push, a little nudge, and you feel a little bit better. But that doesn't last either. And as these things sort of build up, and your efforts to, to go back at them again and again, and they just don't last, and they fade so quickly, and now they're seeming to be fading maybe even faster than they have before, you, and you keep going through this, it's like you get to the end of your life and you're processing things the way that he is and you too are coming to the conclusion, you know what? I'm not sure there's so much meaning here. I understand what Solomon's saying, that it's, it's kind of meaningless. It's a vapor. It doesn't last. Now, you don't need to wait to get to the end of your life to sort of sort this out, to get to the place where you navigate through, well, what is the place where I might find meaning. You can get a grasp on this right now. You probably know if you're, you're doing the work of generating the essence of your spiritual vitality on your own or whether it's being enervated by the Spirit of God which is alive in you. And if it's the latter, because it's generated by the Spirit alive in you and the Spirit stays, that that's something that doesn't wane. That's something that doesn't go away. That's something that doesn't leave you hopeless. The good news is that we don't have to put off finding that meaning, that fulfillment that he's suggesting we can find by what he says we can't find. We can settle this in this moment by putting our faith in Jesus, not through our own efforts, not through our good works, not through our human endeavors, not through our human rituals, not by the things that are bound to this earth, but by putting our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus, in the work of the cross, in the things that he has accomplished on our behalf and through the blood of Jesus. The things that aren't under the sun, the things that are beyond the sun, that are divinely inspired, that are supernatural in nature. He gives us that little hint even as this gets started, and as we get started, I want to be sure that we are on that plane of understanding there is a hope to find here, and that we would be leaning into that. I want to offer you that direction even as we get started. Would you bow your heads with me, please? 
you're here today and you're saying, you know what, this, this talk of this meaninglessness, I, I don't feel quite as discouraged as what Solomon seems to be here. But I do recognize that there have been so many things I've tried to find my hope in, to try to find my meaning in, to try to find my fulfillment in that's just left me empty. And it's because I've been putting too much stock in the things under the sun, the things of this world, the things that I've been able to pursue and generate on my own and for myself. So Lord, today I come and I I confess those things. And I ask that you would help me to focus my mind beyond on the things that ultimately make the difference. And you might be here today as one who would say beyond that, that I've never taken any real steps to define my meaning in something that is beyond this earth. It's been in my own efforts. It's been in my own work. It's been in my own family. It's been in my own career. It's been in my own abilities. But today, today, I want to put my hope in something that's beyond. So today, I offer you that opportunity. You can do so just by saying, Lord, I want that which is supremely, divinely inspired. I want the life that comes in your son Jesus and through his death on the cross. So today, you can just pray this to God. I confess my sin. I confess my endeavors to do it on my own. And I seek your forgiveness. Lord, I come today to put my trust in you. Not in me, the things I've been trying to provide, but in you. And I do so as we, we begin this series. I put the stake in the ground to say that I want to find a meaning. Because ultimately, left to myself, by the end of life, I realize that otherwise I will be in the camp of it just doesn't make a difference. So Lord, I give my heart to you today. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. And friend, if you have prayed that today, I'm so excited and energized for you because for you, things are not meaningless. They have all the meaning in the world because you're now connected to Christ. I'd love to hear about it. You can write on that Connect card before you turn it in. I trusted Jesus today. Or better yet, tell me before you leave. I'd love to pray with you, just celebrate with you the brand new course of meaning that is alive in you. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you that regardless of what is going on around us, how dismal and dreary and drab and awful and meaningless it looks, there's a meaning that we can find in you. Lord, help us as we continue to navigate through this book to do that evaluation of our own hearts, to unpack where we are, that we might find more of where you would desire us to be. Because we can find ourselves in every chapter in this book. So Lord, I just pray for an openness of heart and of spirit. And I thank you for those who've been open in this time and those who have made a commitment to transform their perspective and direction. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Pray for your blessing as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thank you again for joining us online today. If this week's message inspired you to go deeper, don't forget that fall is a great time to join a small group. And we look forward to seeing you again soon, whether it's on campus or online. Have a wonderful week, everyone.